This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. Basically what we're wanting a, a Zen practice to do is to facilitate the natural healing process of our body-mind. So, um, In other words, we need just to open up to the love and compassion within ourselves to to heal those parts of ourselves that need healing or need attention. We need a trauma-informed Zen practice because when Zen first came to the West, it was um, very much uh, a practice which didn't have any real psychological understandings. And um, we learned the hard way. And a lot of those practices which sometimes took the form of a boot camp almost type of mentality of being dropped from Western Zen. Uh, primarily because a lot of the influence of women who came into the Sanghas and uh, softened the practice a lot. And, uh, and of course because we had many psychotherapists who got involved in Zen practice as well, they brought knowledge of, of trauma into the practice. So a psychologically minded Zen practice um, um, can help trauma survivors to heal and recover. A psychologically minded Zen practice has to be a trauma-informed Zen practice. One of the reasons why our whole, um, this particular ordinary mind Zen school was established was because of the fact that um, even with very powerful uh, enlightenment experiences, uh, um, very uh, people high up and senior teachers in, in sanghas um, um, would engage sometimes in exploitative and abusive practices, which is an indication that uh, no matter how powerful a, an enlightenment experience might be, um, it doesn't necessarily uh, trickle down and transform the uh, psychological traumas that people carry. Having said that, um, there are other aspects of Zen practice can be, that can be very conducive to helping us to heal and recover. I'm going to say a bit more about that. Um, but there's a very famous koan uh, about uh, uh, an old uh, Zen master that was um, reincarnated as a fox for a, a thousand lifetimes because... Uh, when he was asked the question, uh, is the enlightened person free from the law of cause and effect, he answered yes. <laughs> so it, it doesn't matter how many um, um, profound experiences we might have on our cushions, it's not necessarily going to transform our, uh, our neurobiological systems that we inherit, that are the, our animal natures. Um, because much of trauma, the knowledge that we've 
really um, that's really come into play over the past, starting in the nineties, really, and uh, up to now. Is the is is how uh, trauma is a universal thing that affects all mammals, and uh, we're we um, we're just as much a part of that as any other uh, animal. And um, so, um, the um, just a little bit about a quick definition of trauma is um, it's a psychological injury uh, resulting from one or a series of events or a set of enduring conditions which overwhelm the um, individual's capacities to cope. It could be a child, it could be an adult. And um, so we have um, two forms in which uh, trauma takes, often with uh, PTSD. Um, It's often a, it can be a one-off event, such as a car crash. and, uh, but we have more uh, complex forms of trauma, which are uh, referred to as complex PTSD. And these are the kinds of traumas that um, usually people have a, it's very rare to find person with just one, one of event. There's often a, a series of events or enduring conditions <clears throat> if, a, if a child is growing up in a, in a home where there's um, chronic domestic violence or abuse, then, uh, this, uh, this makes the trauma more difficult to treat than a one-off trauma. And sometimes uh, a one-off trauma can open up and, and trigger previous historical traumas from the past. And then there's another form of uh, what some people talk about developmental trauma, which is maybe not quite as um, 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 Severe in terms of some of the traumas that, that are in the, uh, the the psychiatric diagnostic manual, but there could be things like uh, like the child being neglected often or being spoken to in a very harsh, critical way, and um, so they also create a, a, a form of trauma as well called developmental trauma. Um, but if you look at the actual definition in the, in the psychiatric manual, uh, trauma happens when people are overwhelmed by an event that exposes them to, to actual or threatened death, serious injury or sexual violence in one, of, one or more of the following ways. Firstly, it could be directly experiencing that event. Or secondly, it could be witnessing the event as it occurs to others. So if a child witnesses violence, then that's also traumatizing. Um, it can be even learning about the events that occurred to a close family member or close friend. And finally, it can actually be um, experiencing repeated or extreme exposure to um, aversive details of traumatic events. So, uh, you know, police officers or counselors that are constantly hearing details of child abuse. Uh, can be traumatized in that way as well. The symptoms of trauma are the price we pay for survival. Um, are wonderful bodies and minds that we've inherited from countless uh, thousands of years of evolution. Um, the brain is wired to survive and uh, 
So the various symptoms of trauma that we experience are really the ways in which we've tried to survive. And often we don't have any control over that. The, just, the brain goes into automatic uh, strategies to survive. And so the, the, this is why we talk a lot about neurobiology, because the, the basic you know, patterns of fight or flight, freeze, submit, cry for help, these are all the kinds of uh, um, ways in which uh, we, along with other animals, try and survive. In the uh, psychiatric manual, there's four baskets of symptoms. and. Uh, they're basically uh, intrusive symptoms or intrusion symptoms of distress or physiological arousal. And they happen when we're exposed to external or internal triggers. So uh, it's very important to be aware of uh, triggers and, and how they operate. And sometimes uh, we might not know that we've been triggered or we might not know what the trigger was. Um, and a trigger can be external. It could be someone yelling at you. It uh, could be internal in the sense of a, um, a building up of anxiety within uh, for some like you know you might get a little bit anxious about an exam and that could trigger up other traumatic memories um, and, uh, and and sometimes we can actually when triggered we can dissociate as well because um, dissociation is one of the main ways in which uh, humans and other animals uh, do our best to survive. Um, another symptom, a basket of symptoms, is disowning or avoiding uh, distressing memories, um, thoughts, or feelings associated with the traumatic events. And um, and that's uh, also efforts to avoid external reminders. So you know, we we try and cut off from internal reminders of traumatic events, and also we might avoid real places or people. Um, in fact, I meet with many people in my counselling practice who are basically um, afraid of human beings. Um, and uh, it can become so extreme sometimes that uh, it's very difficult to actually venture out. We just want to stay inside our cave and only venture out if, if, if necessary. Um, because a lot of trauma, of course, is, um, is interpersonal. Um, so a lot of trauma is caused by other human beings. Uh, another basket of symptoms is the negative thoughts and moods uh, that people experience. Um, it could be negative beliefs about self or others or the world. Um, a very common symptom is a pervasive uh, or recurrent kind of emotional state or mood. It could be fear, anger, guilt, shame. Uh, a lot of people experience a pervasive sense of loneliness. Often by definition, uh, trauma creates a sense of isolation and loneliness. And, uh, and, um, and these states can actually be what gets triggered. Um, I'll say a bit more about memory in a minute, but um, um, a state of feeling lonely could be a memory, a traumatic memory that's been triggered. And the, another basket of symptoms is the, is the more sympathetic nervous system with the hyperarousal being constantly alert, um, on guard. And uh, 
and sometimes that takes the form of risk-taking or self-destructive behaviours, uh, substance abuse, even suicidality. Um, and, um, and so, uh, and finally, often trauma, as I said before, is associated with dissociation. Dissociation can t- take different forms, there's very mild forms of dissociation that we all experience. Um, you know, such as driving the car and then not realizing where we've, you know, we've arrived somewhere. Or simply daydreaming can be a form of dissociation. Um, some people experience a depersonalization where they feel a bit like a not quite real themselves or feel a bit like a dreamlike state. Or derealization where the world doesn't quite feel, you know, you feel you know, disconnected from the world, disconnected from yourself. And um, uh, what's called structural dissociation, which is um, a way in which the personality gets fragmented. And uh, so uh, a child growing up in a really uh, violent environment or abusive environment um, often develops a kind of needs to survive. So the the, the part that feels the, that carries the shame or the anger or different emotions gets split off and disowned, or the part that feels really bad gets split off and disowned, and uh, and a kind of getting on with life, keeping on keeping on kind of normal everyday self becomes a part that takes over and does its best to survive. And, and also people will also develop a kind of protector part that might have different ways of trying to protect the more vulnerable aspects of the self. A protective part could be fierce and very fighting, or a protective part could be very submissive, wanting to please, take different forms. So that kind of dissociation feels like a fragmentation of the self, and uh, these split-off parts are then transferred into the unconscious traumatic memory system. And these memories are often um, implicit memories. They, they, are, they are not explicit memories that we can sort of do a narrative of often. They're not autobiographical memories necessarily. They're often, uh, could be just a particular state, a feeling state or a, um, um, a flashback of some kind of um, visual state or... Um, um, the, um, the, the sense in which um, um, we just get flooded by a feeling that overtakes us and we're not quite sure where it's come from. Um, and so these, these, these are memories that are stored in the unconscious memory system. Um, they are um, often difficult to differentiate between the past and the present. People will often get confused as to what's going on is, uh, is what I'm feeling related to what's going on here is and uh, so these um, a good way of often thinking about when uh, these really distressing thoughts and feelings that might arise are kind of like communications from parts of ourselves that have been stored in the unconscious traumatic memory system and uh, so the journey to healing, in a way, is to is to is to um, be able to find a way of um, you know accessing our, our healthy, mindful self, uh, our ability that has the ability to be in the present moment, and uh, 
to reclaim these fragments that have been split off um, back into the self. Um, and if we don't do that work, those fragments will remain cut off and, uh, and we'll continue to re-experience them when we get triggered. Um, so for many trauma survivors, the past and the present can get very confusing as to what's going on. So in, in, in trauma treatment, um, uh, basically a lot of it's kind of like a three-phase process. One's finding some sense of safety and stability or stabilization both within the and trust, both um, both with a, some other, another person, could be a therapist or someone else, or even internally within ourselves, because the um, we can actually uh, trauma survivors can frighten themselves in different ways because of these cut-off parts, and, uh, and different parts can trigger other parts. Um, a depressed part could trigger a suicidal part, or a, a self-harming part could trigger another part, and can. And often it's difficult for the trauma survivors to, to bring a sense of compassion to the self because for, many, for a lot of interpersonal trauma, the, the perpetrators of the, of the violence or of the abuse have been caregivers. So um, the actual process of actually caring for yourself, paradoxically, it's hard for trauma survivors to do that sometimes. Um, and... Um, so that's why it's important to sort of develop this notion that, well, it's a part of ourself and it could be a little childlike part of ourself and our ability to maybe relate to that child becomes and, and send compassion to that child is a little bit easier. And then the second stage of trauma therapy is processing those memories, the traumatic memories and um, concepts such as a window of tolerance are really important. So the sense in which you want to build a capacity to tolerate the effect, the emotion that we're experiencing. That's um, part of that process of developing dual awareness. To always have one foot present here and now and be aware that you're in that self, you're accessing that self. And at the same time, there might be this real uh, feeling of, there might be a, it might be fear, anxiety, shame, anger. And it's, it's, um, to be able to actually tolerate that is very important. Uh, rather than, if, 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 if we don't keep that window of tolerance and the, the emotion overwhelms us, that's, that's when we get, re, it becomes re-traumatizing again. And um, a lot of the contemporary trauma field moved away from just getting people to, to try and narrate what happened because that could sometimes overwhelm people. and. Uh, um, it's not so much the uh, trying to uh, process the actual events. It's more, it's more about processing the way in which the trauma affected us, and how we how we coped with it, and how we survived it, and then getting to know ourselves in that way. So the importance of the window of tolerance, staying grounded in the here and now, maintaining that sense of dual awareness, um, not getting over overwhelmed or identified with these other parts. Or emotions, and then starting to the integration process is linking, getting to know the different parts, and uh, and getting to know ourselves in that way, getting to know parts of ourselves which we've maybe never known very well before, and uh, bringing it all back into our our healthy self, which uh, wants to grow and uh, and um, 
and 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 feel a sense of aliveness and uh, and uh, and love. So we treat the trauma legacy, not necessarily the event. Um, so, as children, uh, we may get alienated from that self. And when I'm talking about our true self, or the, the self which is a healthy self, and so sometimes it's really hard to access that self and that's where Zen practice can help us a lot to try and bring us, find us a way of being able to recognize when we're in self and that, and that, and that self that self that has that ability, that sense of dual awareness that is aware both of the contents of what we're experiencing but also we're aware of being aware. As long as we're, that probably that's the crucial way of noticing if you're in self is that being aware of being aware. It, it's when a strong emotion or a part hijacks the self and that takes us over, then we've lost that sense of being aware of being aware. And we've become hijacked by a strong emotion of some kind. You might witness this in yourself or you might have witnessed it in other people. You might have seen people sometimes fly off the handle or fly into a rage where they've lost that capacity to be aware of being aware. They've just become that, that emotion. And uh, it might not just be an emotion, it might be an acting out of that emotion. It might be a movement, some sort of procedural movement as well. And so when, when children become alienated from the, that sense of self, and um, uh, which in that self, that healthy sense of self is all about being attached and being intimate and being playful and being creative. And uh, when we get alienated from that self, it, it becomes more the, the, the defensive self or the, the, the self which is governed by the threat survival system, which closes down a lot. And, um, and when, when, when that dominates, when that sort of self that is patterned around the sense of threat all the time takes over, um, that's when sometimes people report that experience of feeling of lack or feeling of something missing or feeling like a fake or um, that as, a, as a result of that alienation from ourself as part of our survival system. <clears throat> um, so a lot of our younger selves are exiled into the traumatic system and um, we need to try and welcome them back into the healthy self and uh, one of the difficulties of doing that around these injured parts are orbit kind of defensive strategies or protective parts and the purpose of them is to, is to sort of make sure that this little vulnerable part, injured part, doesn't get triggered because it might overwhelm us. So we have to work with the protective parts of ourselves as well and get them on side too. And um, so just to give it, like to treat trauma, um, what's called the frontal lobe uh, inhibition must be reversed. Um, so the amygdala, which is often the part, the limbic part of the brain, which is kind of like our alarm system, which is always on, on the lookout for danger. In order for the amygdala to, to respond to fear actions really quickly, the prefrontal region has got to be shut down because the limbic system works much more quickly than the frontal system. 
And so in, when we've been uh, subjected to a lot of situations of fear or trauma, then um, the, um, we have to reverse that so that the, um, the fear that we experience a lot uh, requires increased activity in the prefrontal region. And so the amygdala is less free to express fear. So we, we've got to make room for our fear rather than being afraid of our fear. And a lot of that then, a lot of the practice in Zen practice you can refer to as a kind of like top-down and bottom-up. Like the, the top-down is when, when we're doing something as simple as bringing our attention to the breath and holding it there, then noticing when it wanders off and coming back again. All those basic mindfulness strategies are actually activating the frontal region here. And uh, we want to maintain that ability to be mindful like that and be aware at the same time that the fear system might be activated so that we can bring that to regulate. That's a, a top-down regulation. So mindfulness can have the ability to regulate strong emotions. And one of the reasons why Zen, other, Zen and other mindfulness-based therapies and, and teachings can be really helpful in helping us recover from trauma. Um, but um, but the, the, the bottom-up processing is also really important too. Um, so um, a bottom-up processing is more about how we access the emotional system and the and the and the and the, and the basic brainstem system. Um, um, so, like these these are often the ways in which we would help a child to regulate a child's emotions. Um, so, a apart from our being being present, there's also things like repetition and rhythm and so forth um, that can help. Um, and in some ways, the metaphor of um, of attachment or and, and and when when the infant's becoming attached to the mother, it's a lot of its repetition, its connection, disconnection, connection, disconnection, attunement, misattunement, attunement. And in that sort of dance of creating a secure attachment and helping to regulate pretty strong emotions. And uh, so in some ways, um, Zen practice uh, can, can, can replicate that sense as well. So it's not just the, the mindfulness that's important, but often it's um, things like the repetition and reliability. So um, there's a lot of repetition in Zen practice. Um, and that kind of that kind of like with a child, the child needs reliability and repetition and structure, and uh, so everything from the, the kind of procedures that we have in the zendo uh, and um, is uh, can be very helpful if it's practiced on a regular basis, and you can create your own little sort of practice space at home as well. Um, the, we don't do a lot of chanting in our sangha. We might do more next year, but even things like chanting can also be very rhythmic and very regulating of the nervous system. Um, and uh, the sense in which we're doing this practice together with others uh, breaks down that sense of isolation as well, so that we can uh, build a sense of safety with others and build a sense of being able to experience intimacy in the room without it being too challenging or too. Um, <clears throat> the whole notion uh, of just sitting and experiencing whatever it is we're experiencing, we're building that capacity to 
joke of Beck calls it building the, the, a bigger container, which is the same metaphor as the window of tolerance. Um, the more we're able to kind of even to sit reasonably still and uh, for 30 minutes, um, it's, it's not easy. And uh, you're, we're building a capacity uh, to tolerate uh, um, and um, various uh, feelings and sensations and be with them. Um, sometimes the experience might even become a more emotional experience. And in our Zen practice, we want that sense of mindfulness to be a sense of curiosity. It's all about being curious, noticing what's happening. If we're being curious and noticing, we're in our, we're in our self, we're in our, the sense in which we're able to be aware of being aware. And we're not taken over or hijacked by whatever it is we might be experiencing. In the same way, labeling thoughts can be helpful, and, and that, that also promotes a sense of stepping back, being meta, being able to reflect on what it is we're thinking, and seeing that the thought is not who we are. And in the same way, we can actually um, uh, expand on thought labeling, and almost like labeling a part, like it could be um, a part that comes up which has a sense of sometimes a futility part or a part that oh, this is hopeless or um, I'll never be able to do this and there's a corresponding mood that that triggers or it could be a critical part that then comes in and uh, then triggers another part which is a depressed part. So getting to know our internal system in that way and how are these different parts are working is just an extension of the thought labeling, but it's just getting a bit more intimate with what's going on. And as we're doing that, we're accessing the self. Um, if you can label something or step back and notice something, you're not totally blended with or identified with that particular part or emotion. And we can then get, start to get curious about that emotion or that part. And we can actually start to relate to it. So it's about the mindfulness practice is opening up our inner space and our ability to relate compassionately to ourselves, which is um, to start to actually love ourselves, love our different parts, and even create a sense of attachment security within ourselves by doing this kind of practice. And um, similarly observing, you know, in our everyday life practice, observing when, we, if we're having a strong reaction, that's an indication there's a part that's been activated, and, uh, and, and becoming, you know, developing our, our, our awareness of what the trigger was. Sometimes it can be really obvious what the trigger was, and other times not so much. Um, I, someone very close to me the other day was actually just in, the, in a corner store in Bellingham and, uh, uh, and um, as, a, as an older woman she thought this, this guy was being served before her and she stood up and said am I being ignored just because I'm a woman kind of thing and uh, this guy, this younger man, uh, uh, totally lost it and went, flew off the handle and was very abusive towards the woman. And uh, 
and, and, and that, that just, uh, at the time, the woman then dissociated and kept really calm and walked out the shop and then just totally, you know, lost it when she got to the car. So it's kind of like, you know, just in our everyday, simple everyday life, these little things can uh, traumatize or re-traumatize people. But if, if we have a, some understanding of what's going on for ourselves, we can make sense out of it. And that helps. The kind of uh, uh, educating ourselves about trauma is really important so that we don't feel so confused when these strong reactions overtake us. We can get have some idea about how this goes all the way back to when we were a little kid or a little girl. And, uh, and we want to get to that little child and help them to actually come out of the past. So we're going to be able to those little little parts often have got no sense or awareness of our adult selves, of our wise adult selves, or our mindful selves. They're still one way of understanding trauma is it's stuck in the past, and the parts that are stuck in the past are still living in the past. They're still living in that house forty years ago, where all that bad stuff happened, and it's almost a way in which they need to be brought up and to meet you and to to help them understand that they're no longer in that house 40 years ago. Um, it's fascinating work. Um, so um, it all comes back down in the sense of understanding Zazen and Zen practice is a, is a self-acceptance, a self-compassion. And, um, and hopefully as we, as we grow in our ability to accept ourselves and become compassionate to ourselves, we, we we facilitate the natural healing process. So, I've got a uh, couple of minutes left. Is there, is there a question? Not much time. Any comments or questions? No, well, that, that was just the, the, the dissociation that helped her to keep it, keep it together uh, when the, uh, the threat was happening and when you're able to get back to a safe place. You know, for example, uh, 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 you might have witnessed this with a mouse, like, you know, you went to kick a mouse or um, the mouse just freezes and then um, sometime later it will come out and sometimes it will have a tremor and, and then run away. So that's the sense in which when you're feeling safe again, you'll start to experience the, yeah. the shaking or the, yeah. But like if you don't know what's going on, that can be really confusing. <coughs> and that's where the, the past and the present gets confused as well. I've heard too that um, particularly mammals, but all sorts of animals, that's part of releasing the trauma from their body is shaking. <coughs> some pictures of um, yeah, animals doing that. Yeah, yeah, but the um, and that's that's a natural process. You'll you see them on YouTube. Yeah, it's a classic one of the polar bear doing it. Um, the problem with uh, uh, human beings often, especially in, in for children, is that the 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 you get ongoing enduring conditions of chronic abuse and violence, and it's not a one-off thing. And so the whole system has to adapt to how do you adapt to living in constant threat all the time. Uh, 
That's where that shaping therapy feels about it. That can be helpful to a certain point, yeah. yeah. But I think the most more than that is, is the capacity that we're building here to, that capacity about being able to be in self and at the same time experience um, the, the difficult emotion or part without that overwhelming us. That's the most difficult bit. Um, I'm working with a, 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 an older lady at the moment and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of stuff gets triggered in old age, because in old age we we start to confront dependency again, and and uh, and like we might we we feel like might, we might feel like a burden on our daughter or a son, and uh, in a similar way which we might have felt as children, and then that child part which hasn't been resolved comes up again, and gets and then you start to get really fearful, and you think, am I really afraid like this or? But it really helps to understand it's actually that you're re-experiencing the child again that was afraid, that's still been afraid. Then it gives us something to work with, that it's not you that is totally overcome by the fear, it's a child part in you that's overcome by the fear. And then hopefully you can meet the child part and, and, and work with the child part in you in exactly the same way you would do with a real child, using an imaginative process to engage the child, reassure the child that they're safe. Hold the child, speak to the child, bring it back into the present. So that's the practice of when the amygdala is triggered and uh, it's, uh, it's a practice is to, to the repetition of bringing um, back into the sensations. Um, and then that repetition is also the bottom-up part, so... Yes. Yeah. And if it, if it starts to get too intense, then that's the idea of trying to actually... Okay, well, let's... There's various techniques for working with that. You want to slow it down. And if you feel like you're going to lose the window of tolerance... You don't want to lose the window of tolerance. So it's very important to be able to put a brake on it and slow it down so that you come back into your window of tolerance again. So really getting to know your window of tolerance.